there's two fundamental fallacies that blockchain is stuck in. The first one is that data exists, and the second is that time exists. Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you to another episode of the podcast that explores the human condition in our age of transition and transformation as an exploration of what changes when we live our lives in light of the fact the future is listening. Sometimes it seems like taking this long now big history perspective on the turbulence and chaos of our daily lives is the only thing holding this show together thematically when we've got software programmers and visionary artists and authors and education reformers and futurists all on the same program. But what holds all of these people together is a sense of responsibility to what they're creating, as well as a deep sense of purpose in the work that they do, informed and inspired by a bigger picture understanding of how each of our unique individual contributions is a single pillar holding up a kind of trans-temporal temple, the human project, and to locate ourselves in that communal effort, and to reinterpret our lives in light of that much, much greater context. Which is why you get episodes like today's episode with Arthur Brock of Holochain and the Metacurrency Project, because Art Brock is a shining example of exactly the kind of mentality I'm hoping to promote on this show. Someone who sees the systems, who understands their functional relationships, their internal connections, and how by approaching the questions, the puzzles of society and culture, by viewing it as a single living organism, by taking an ecological and evolutionary view of human civilization, many of our so-called wicked problems become sensible, perhaps even solvable. And maybe there is no more wicked problem than how to avert the ongoing catastrophe our current economic systems are wreaking on the planet and on ourselves and designing a world that works for everybody, not even just human beings, but literally every body on this planet served by a newly reimagined system of flows of value. One based not on exploitation and externalizing the costs, but on a comprehensive understanding of the value that every single player brings to this collaborative living experiment we call the biosphere, and how each of them can be rewarded appropriately for doing so. In addition to designing or consulting on the design of over a hundred different currencies over the last decade, Art Brock is also the architect and visionary leader of the Holochain project, one of the more exciting and unusual and wonderful projects to emerge out of the crypto space, but largely because it differentiates itself so profoundly from anything that you've heard described as a blockchain or cryptocurrency project, a system designed from entirely different premises and assumptions which could actually fulfill the promise of blockchain technologies by providing secure, private, voluntary, distributed internet in ways that restore agency and self-determination to the individuals out of which the networks are made. Anybody who's been listening to this show for a while knows that I am fascinated by how our understanding of reality and what makes a fact a fact is a huge piece of what we're going through right now as a species, as we're overwhelmed by what Richard Doyle calls the info quake. And a lot of the stuff in this episode is going to be somewhat familiar to anybody who heard episode 39 about 21st century education with Hunter Motz or episode 56 with Sophia Rocklin about how to design an economy that actually works with rather than against our ecosystems, or episode 60 with Sean S. Bjorn Hargens and about how profoundly transformational simply becoming aware of the resources that we have can be. But this one goes even further into challenging the assumptions that we bring into any conversation about money, wealth, or value even what it means for something to be true. So I'm going to apologize in advance 
Uh, this is a very, very heady episode. We really make a point of trying to make this accessible to people who are not familiar with blockchain technology, with cryptocurrencies. But if you want to go back and listen to episode 52 with Michael Phillip and Jen Sadini, where we talk about blockchain, we introduce the basics to people. I would recommend that. Or for that matter, episode 79 with James Eggleston, where we get into how we can use technologies like this to decentralize our existing infrastructure and create a more equitable and uh, healthy, affluent world for people. Another disclaimer before this episode is that this recording was the culmination and fulfillment of more than six months of correspondence with Art. He's an extremely busy guy setting up this revolutionary software network. So when I got to his Airbnb in Austin and I discovered that I was out of AA batteries and so was he, I ended up having to record this episode on my phone. And so the audio is not as great as I would like it to be. And I apologize in advance for that. But I think this conversation is so juicy that I couldn't withhold it on the basis of the subpar audio quality. That said, I'm sure you can tell the difference between this intro and the main course. And that difference is made possible by studio recording a gear that I purchased myself. So... Now's a good time to remind you that this entire program and all of its auxiliary media, including the time-lapse videos and other delicious bites of stuff that I've been putting up lately, are the product of one guy, and it's entirely supported by you, the listeners, through patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. I am deeply grateful to the 126 people who are paying my rent right now so that I can make these conversations happen and make them available to people. If you'd like to be a part of that, donate at any amount you can, and I will personally thank you on this program and with oodles of wonderful perks. Special shout out to this week's new patrons, Gang Gang, Eric Abel, Rob Smith, and also Matthew Engelbrecht, who edited his pledge in my favor. Whether or not your bodies ultimately do leave a fossil one day, you'll all live forever in my heart when I upload it to a computer running on Holochain, which I will do if I ever upload anything because the brain is not a complete person. Let's get that straight right now. Anyway, if you haven't looked me up on Patreon already, please go. There's a ton of free music and live notes I've taken during conference panels and other cool stuff up there. There are a few exclusive episodes in the backstage section, but I make as much of what I do free and publicly available to everyone as I can, because that's the whole point. If you subtract the need to hustle from a human life, what you're left with is the need to make a meaningful contribution. So I am really committed to creating value on this show, and I thank you all for your help with that. Anyway... Sit back and enjoy as Art Brock and I waste no time asking some of the deepest questions we can about how to design systems that actively reflect and encourage the things that we value most. Art Brock, it's a pleasure to have you on Future Fossils. Thank you, Michael. Good to be here. Sorry, I was drinking water. (laughs) (laughs) So, let's see. I first heard of you and encountered your mind and work on Doug Rushkoff's show on Team Human. And I was really inspired, uh, more than any of the details of your work, I was inspired by the spirit that you bring to it. And, you know, your your vision of a technology that works for everyone that is actually designed to serve people rather than simply extract value from them. So uh, maybe the best place to start would be in how you, like how you started, how you got into designing currencies and the technological basis for them. And uh, yeah, just the very beginning at the, you know, in the broadest strokes. 
Cool. Um, yeah, for, for me, I've been interested in how the world works, how to make it better, what's going on, sort of what's wrong, why is it wrong, uh, and what patterns are we stuck in, how do we change them. Like, I'm, I think even from a very young age, that was something fascinating to me. And I think one of my particular gifts is interfacing with complex systems, being able to find patterns in complex systems, being able to find leverage points for changing those patterns. And, you know, my own place where I've been trying to do work in applying leverage for changing patterns, for, for social change, has evolved over, over the years from raising individuals' consciousness and that kind of thing to transforming education to transforming workplace and how it is that we organize ourselves, building self-organizing companies, networks of companies in that pattern, to currencies, seeing currencies as even a higher leverage point, because if you change those incentives, then companies will optimize themselves to a whole new set of incentives and use all of their innovation and creativity to optimize to that. So you don't even have to like give them the template. You just switch the, goal, the move the goalpost and let them figure out how to get there and, you know, things like that. And, and as my own thinking has evolved along the way, I've just discovered strange and wonderful patterns that uh, give you leverage for change. You know, in talking about restructuring incentives, I think a lot about explaining this in terms of, I don't know that that, that kind of philosophy uh, that, that, that frame through which we see things was as obvious before we discovered the theory of evolution. And we can sort of understand an, a landscape of opportunity as a landscape of, like Richard Dawkins talks about the, the fitness landscape, you know, and climbing Mount Improbable, one of his books where, you know, it's, it's about if you want to specialize for one thing, you'd have to like unspecialize and specialize for something else. And it seems like a lot of institutions are actually going through a transition like this now as we go through these seismic reorganizations of, well, you know, call it a currency landscape or an incentive landscape in terms of how new access to data and our ability to extract insights from that data are changing the world we thought we were living in and opening our eyes to the complexities of it. So I don't know, I guess, I guess, how do you understand, because I know that Holochain and then the sort of underlying, you know, the, the scepter architecture that it's building on, that these are based on a, a biomimetic study of natural systems. Yes. So I'm curious if there is a, uh, how specifically a study of nature and, and evolution and, you know, biological fractals uh, has informed your thinking and your design. Yeah. So, so it's interesting because you mentioned the world we think we live in, and I kind of stopped that story in mentioning currencies. And as you may know, I, if, you, if I don't define that further, then people think they know what I'm saying there, Right. They think I'm talking about money, and for me, I'm talking about current like flows. See the ability to see flows, the symbol systems that we make to shape, enable, and measure flows. And if you start thinking about it that way, then you can also look at nature and the symbol systems, the signaling systems, the information systems used in nature. For signaling flows, uh, obvious place to start is like our bodies, right? The the hormonal signals, the the neural, the nervous system signals, you know, elect, uh, electrical signals, even infrared light, infrared light uh, signals, and um, there's just uh, a, a whole bunch of ways that our cells have set up to talk to each other, and our organs have set up to talk to each other, and our subsystems have set up to to coordinate and orchestrate and um it 
is just a, it's a rich world of patterns. And when you start seeing that we have built similar things and just can't see them that way, we're not looking through the right lens. And, and for me, currencies, as in flow, seeing flows, the tools for seeing flows, helps us do that. You start seeing how, you know, it, currencies are not just about money. That's like a fingernail on the animal of currencies, right? It's a tiny part of the of the whole picture. Like a college degree makes visible a flow of learning in a particular domain, you know, and you, to get that degree, you need to complete 15 credits of this and 25 credits of that and 12 credits of this other thing. And the credits are a unit of account currency counting up course hours. And the credits only count if you get a good enough grade. The grades are a performance metric currency attempting to measure how well you're learning the content of the course. You divide up the power in the university by who can issue the currencies, and then the students navigate getting the degree with these three non-monetary currencies. But the thing is, there's thousands of these things, and we don't see them. So when you when you take that lens of living systems and how do living systems coordinate, and you start looking at our own systems through it instead of from our sort of narrow definitions that come maybe from traditional economics or whatever, you start seeing lots of different layers and different leverage points. So yes, in the one sense I talked about businesses optimizing themselves to new incentives by moving that goalpost, if you transformed money, that would do that. But also when you transform currencies of other types, it does that. Where what businesses are measured on, like right now, we teach people in business school that it's about profit, right? It's this extractive relationship. And you started this by asking about, you know, the interest in technology that's not coming from that extractive and exploitive um, pattern. One of the things that you start to see is in this biomimetic domain, you just don't need to operate from the same scarcity and competition constraints. And you even then brought up evolution, and it's just fascinating how how some, some of the mainstream story of evolution it stays stuck in those competition and scarcity constraints. You know, like the survival of the fittest as distinct from the survival of the fittingest. Mm. So, you know, on that point, there is... I think in survival of the fittest, there's a sort of implied winner take all, right? Whereas we know now that a robust, thriving ecosystem is specious, it's biodiverse. And, you know, I mean, you compare that to not to like jump ahead into like crypto universe, but just as a point of reference, it does seem like a lot of the conversation going on in that space is stuck in what Ken Wilber would call a first tier, you know, there's one winner kind of mentality. You know, it's like, who is going to be the one project to replace everything else? And it just doesn't seem that that's the case. And in fact, uh, you know, what we are observing at this point and really, you know, studying across history, have observed at every at every. Uh, advent of a new technological ecosystem is that uh, all of these familiar niches are recreated in that new ecosystem and that all these familiar symbiotic relationships are created. So that's a good place to start, I guess. In examining this issue of measuring flows, you know, we're not really talking about a world currency that's capable of knowing, seeing, measuring everything. We're talking about an ecosystem of relationships, right? So how do we get, you know, how do you think that we get from here to there? Like, you know, what are the, obviously you're, you're deeply at work on some projects that are intended to take us into a more balanced uh, currency ecosystem, so uh, there's a drawing that we use in the Metacurrency Project that um, helps outline a living systems model of wealth. And the, the kind of mentality that you're talking about that is, is dominating somewhat the, the, the blockchain space and cryptocurrency space right now is kind of the one ring to rule them all, right? The, the currency that becomes the global universal gambling chip that we trade. And... Um, I'm suggesting that 
um, the current economy that is focused on these gambling chips, these fungible units of speculative wealth, are actually decoupled from living systems. And that what we need to learn is the recoupling. We actually, if we don't want to continue to sort of poison ourselves and and destroy the planet or whatever, that part of what we need to do is to actually even have our currencies be given by the living systems. So in the case of Holochain versus blockchain, and uh, which Holochain doesn't have a currency built into it where most blockchains do, but most blockchains have to have a currency built into it because they're so inefficient that you have to pay people to run them. Holochain is more of the philosophy of, you know, Dropbox doesn't pay you to host a copy of your files, right? Like there's an inherent incentive to run a Holochain app so that you are in control of your identity and your data and what you say and who knows about it and your permission. Like that if you don't do that, then you're turning that power over to somebody else, uh, you know, whether that's a a Facebook, a Twitter or a, a bank so we think that that incentive is already aligned and they're efficient enough that you don't need much additional incentive there. But on top of Holochain, we are launching our first big commercial currency project called Holo. And Holo is a way of bridging Holochain applications back to mainstream web users through uh, providing web interfaces to that for people who are not running Holochain yet. But they can still get the, the features by other people extending virtual holochain space. (sighs) All of that was to say the holo currency supply, rather than being some algorithm set in advance or some fixed number of tokens or, you know, it's, it's actually a breathing supply, one that expands and contracts based on the productive capacity of the network. So if you think of an ecosystem, which has a particular carrying capacity, there's a rate at which you can extract energy or resources or nutrients or food or, you know, that you can extract from that ecosystem without harming its capacity to regenerate. We have tuned the holo currency to the productive capacity of the network of hosts. So as that network grows, then the supply can also grow because that hosting power is actually there, right? And if that network contracts, then the supply also contracts. So having a currency design that uses mutual credit, or you can think of that as kind of double entry accounting instead of tokens made from nothing, allows you to get some of these biological dynamics back and to connect it into the value production network. Now, this may seem Weak in the domain of hosting may not seem immediately obvious, the connection in terms of natural systems, but if you think of the next currency being backed by food or energy or housing or transportation, you start seeing how actually having the value of the accounting units tied into the community's capacity to produce that value it gives us the stability, the kind of value stability that's missing in the crypto space right now that makes it all this dangerous, volatile roller coaster ride that has no productive economy, right? People can't actually lean their business model on it and count on paying their rent next week, you know? Like, um, so it's not a very safe place for most people to, to participate unless they can afford to lose the money they're gambling. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. I almost think about... Alvin and Marie Toffler's book, Future Shock, looking at the trend that we're seeing in the crypto space to design an effective and practical stable coin, you know, some, something that will defeat the volatility of this speculative enterprise. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, listening to uh, people talk about how they're going to create a stable currency in crypto, it seems like it's all uh, every one of them is sort of reinventing the wheel of like a basket commodity type thing. It's, it's all going back to real world resources. But then again, it's still sort of bound to and subject to the laws of what you know you show in your chart, the, the speculative market. Yeah. Yeah. Most of, most of the people designing stable coins are still stuck in the fiat token model where 
once you create something, it can't go away, right? You, which means um, you can't contract the supply, which means the supply doesn't breathe. The value actually has to fluctuate to, to correlate with market, market shifts. And then they're just hoping that hedging will do it. If you put enough things that might have counter indicators of stuff that, you know, of demand, then, then we're going to get a stable coin, but it's actually simpler than that. It's actually that when you tie it to real value instead of only speculative value, and you create a center of gravity to that marketplace that is distinct from the gambling price on exchanges, then there is actually a body to this animal, to the, to the productive economy, essentially, that you can have the, the tail not wag the dog because you've created a different center of mass, a different center of gravity. And, and that's our approach. And we're also, because we're going to be launching more of these asset-backed currencies, we will also probably create a basket, but it will be a, an extra stable basket because it's going to be backed by stable asset-backed currencies, right? Like, so it's going to be a, yeah, <laughs> like second-degree stable. Meta-stable. That's right. Yeah, if you, so actually, that's a, that's, a good, um, that's a good place to sort of go sideways and backwards into the conversation on meta-currency, which, you know, we've, we have a mutual friend in Sean S. Bjorn Hargens. He was on the show. And uh, just before we started recording, you said, you know, it's important to, to differentiate between his idea of meta-capital and the meta-currency project. I mean, I don't know uh, whether you just mean simply institutionally or in terms of the, the sort of uh, mental framing around this idea. Uh, I was just saying just because they're meta something didn't uh, mean they were the same thing, that they, yeah. they had different uh, roots. Although um, having been friends and collaborators for a while, there are parts that have also mixed and blended and converged. But um, because your background was, was with him, I wasn't sure how much of the metacurrency side that you had because um, he was more focused on, on capital, on sort of the types of value and we're more focused on flow because the reason for us is we're interested in living systems being alive. And aliveness doesn't have to do with the stocks. It has to do with the flows. Because if I, you know, my airflow gets blocked for a few minutes here, all the same stock of stuff is here in my body, but I stop being a human. The same stuff is there, but... I'm no longer human. The flows have been broken. And you can take any of my vital flows and that same thing will happen. If I bleed out, if I if you starve me, if you dehydrate me, if right, like any vital flow that, that's missing, the system breaks down. And so understanding what the patterns of flow are that actually nourish a living system, that nourish community, that nourish in collective intelligence, um, that is where our, our focus was. It was less about the forms of capital and the, than, than the patterns of flow. Mm. This reminds me of uh, the, the unapologetic technocrat Parag Khanna, who nonetheless put out a really sort of high-minded article right around Trump's election. It was the five maps the new president of the United States must understand. And they were all about flows in, you know, across borders and basically saying, look at all of these trade relationships, look at the, the electrical, the water, the oil infrastructure connecting the United States to Mexico, to Canada, you know, crossing the oceans, that these are the real, that in, in a sense, these are deeper realities than the borders, you know, that we're, we're kind of shifting a, uh, the figure ground relationship here. The actual energy of, you know, the food and fuel and work and that kind of stuff that's making everything run is distinct from the names of the citizenships on different sides of map lines. Yeah. But, um, you know, when you were on this panel at Voice and Exit Conference this last weekend and and uh, somebody brought up to the panel the issue of adoption, and it seems like there is 
you're you're coming up on a potentially on a hurdle of getting people to shift and to see things in this way that there's that there's you know that and equally so I think with this idea of an agent centric uh, system in which we all are responsible for the management of our own data that it's kind of like you know uh, a continuation of the shift from Catholic to Protestant Christianity in that there's no longer a Pope, you know, it's like your unmediated P2P relationship with God, you know? And so there's a a, a similar disintermediation going on here that seems like it requires a personal psychological leap, like actual personal transformation in order to appreciate this. Do you, do you feel like, um, that you've, you're encountering that with people, or do you think people are coming into this naturally? Uh, no, we're, we're definitely encountering some of that with people. I mean, that, that's a fascinating uh, metaphor you just used, right? The, the Instead of your relationship to the divine being mediated through the priests and up the line through the Pope or something like that, you know, the whole Protestant thing was like, look, here's your own copy of the Bible. Read it and create your own relationship, right, with, with the divine. And that's basically what Holochain is doing because blockchain still mediates your relationship through miners or stakers, or they're the only ones who can actually write to the blockchain world. You know, they've just created a different hierarchy of, of uh, priests, if you will, right? A new, a new priest class. And Holochain, you literally point your browser at yourself. You point to localhost. And it's interesting even talking to developers about this because they, when when they're coming from traditional semi-centralized web mindset or blockchain mindset, they still think you have to point somewhere else. It's like, no, 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 you just point it at yourself. You are your own server. And then the data synchronizes with whatever nodes it needs to synchronize with based on the data you have to interact with. Uh, but the whole point, that's part of why it ends up being so much more efficient. But that is a that is a mindset, and it's not an easy one for people to make. So, if we examine this through the data architecture of Holochain being radically different from the data architecture of something like Bitcoin or or uh, Ethereum, then we're kind of talking about two different body plans in a technological Cambrian explosion, right? We're going through this phase of rapid ideation, experimentation with new ways of structuring information and incentive landscapes and how that creates different social organisms or different political, cultural organisms. Uh, like you said at the very beginning, you know, you just, all you have to do is is change the location and distance of the carrot and stick, kind of, and you get a whole different pattern. One of the things that impresses me at this basic level about the way that you and your team have structured your communication about this is that you set out at the very beginning, here are all the things not to use Holochain for. You know, here are the situations where it won't work. You know, that's obvious that, you know, there are circumstances where an organism with a head, with sense organs clustered on one end of its body, is useful. And then sometimes it's a tree with sort of a, you know, a a more diffuse anatomy. And I'm curious how you think this is going to shake out, you know, how you, you feel that Holochain and blockchain are going to end up supplementing one another, complementing each other ecologically. I think their coexistence will be in, in, in the longer history of things, very short, um, because their orders of efficiency are so out of sync with Holochain being somewhere around a million times more efficient in, in doing processing, doing computational work, which is what we use computers for and in doing storage. And in do, I mean, like, so I think they will coexist and I think they will even co-function for a while. I think one of the ways we may even kind of um, attract people to using Holochain is as a, um, a stable side chain or state channel technology for blockchain and uh, for Ethereum, for example, 
but then when people learn to use it, they will realize there's actually no reason to go back to the quote main chain, that you can actually get all of the same functions if you model your problem properly. And so most of the things that we put in our FAQ right at the beginning of um, Holochain, like when back in, I think we wrote that FAQ like in January of 2017 or something like that, were written to discourage people from taking their normal way of approaching this blockchain and trying to do it on top of Holochain. Like we said, for example, don't run currencies. Yeah. <laughs> now, that's not because Holochain can't run currencies. It's because Holochain isn't going to give you automatic consensus on tokens or coins because what Holochain does is create validation for data integrity. It doesn't, you don't need consensus if you structure it agent-centric and do account balance transfers. And then you're signing things to chains. You already have a sequence. You don't, you, you, there's no ambiguity of sequence. You don't need a global sequence. You don't need global consensus for a sequence. You don't need any of that nonsense. That's all wasted computation. Every blockchain is doing lots of that wasted computation. And we were saying, don't do that, because everybody was coming to this from the token mindset, because what some people haven't realized is that blockchain really has one killer app. It's called tokenization. And, you know, all the people that were thinking, yeah, we're going to go create the driver-owned Uber and run it on Ethereum, you know, they're like, actually, Ethereum can't handle anywhere near this computation load, and we certainly can't afford to pay for it on Ethereum. So we will just create a driver coin and run it on some other centralized system that falls into all the same normal power struggles of a, right? Like, so it didn't really get us to where we wanted to go, but look, we can tokenize and gather a bunch of money through an ICO and woohoo, magic internet money, right? And so that's kind of what blockchain has given us is ICOs and tokens. And, um, Tokens, when it comes to computation, are not a very difficult application, right? It's like, do you have the key? Then you can spend it to up to the input amount, right? You can create coins, out, output coins up to the, the total up to the input amount. Not a, not a hard, like it's, you know, some pretty simple math and a couple of uh, checking cryptographic signatures and, and such. And so... Back to your question, I think we intend to to play nice and enable a bunch of the things in the blockchain space. And there may be other people who realize the advantages of this, of this architecture and start creating competing things in our space. But, but I don't think the two will live together that long. So I asked Facebook about this conversation and... Uh, the only person that deputized himself as qualified to ask you a question in my friends list was uh, a fellow Future Fossils guest, Nathan Waters, who uh, runs uh, an Ethereum community in Australia and wanted to ask about how you handle fungible assets. And this is, this is to this question of, you know, I see the elegance and the efficiency of a, you know, a kind of peer validation immune system, you know, like you, the intro vi video on the Holochain website lays this out really beautifully. You know, somebody tries to hack into a circle and in order to do that, they have to fake the validation, which automatically forks them off of the thing, right? So, but then again, you say in the FAQ, like basically don't do this. Don't issue these irreplaceable one-of-a-kind assets on the chain it has nothing to do with them being irreplaceable or one-of-a-kind it has to do with um if you make your currency model token-centric so you're you're falling into a um a fundamental uh fallacy there's two fundamental fallacies that blockchain is stuck in the first one is that data exists and the second is that time exists so now we're getting into the meat here. Seem yeah. really important, right? And what I mean by exists, I mean the data has some independent truth that there's like that there is a single source of truth, 
and you have to now manage the integrity of this single source of truth. So we make a list of coins or tokens. This become this list becomes our single source of truth, and now we have to manage any changes to this list, make sure that they were done by who's supposed to do them, and and what order they happened in, so that you don't you prevent prevent somebody from double spending or that kind of thing, right? Well, that's because you start off started off making a mistake, thinking that the data has independent existence. That's a pattern, a lazy pattern of thinking from when we had centralized computers under centralized control, and we would make a, we would store things in a database or a spreadsheet or a list or whatever, and be the only ones who could manage that list, and you know, and uh, then we would have this be our single source of truth. But that actually isn't the way information in the world works, and so if you're generating actually a sort of fiction, yeah, we'll come back to that. So um, if I ask you, you know, what's the temperature in the room here right now? Well, first of all, where? Right over there by the window where it's hotter outside. There's probably it's hotter over there. And then above the, the light bulbs over there, that's hot. But under the AC vent over there, it's probably a little colder. And there isn't one temperature in the room right now. And if you had a device... You had one of those little infrared, little laser pointer type things. You could click and take readings. You'd get a bunch of different readings. But what you would have is your wielding of a device that's generating a series of readings, a sequence of readings that are subject to how well that device is calibrated. Right? It isn't still truth. And you could submit these things, um, and they should be submitted and stored as coming from this device wielded by you, ideally. It's coming from your agency, right? Because then if we find out tomorrow that this device is 20% out of calibration, we could actually adjust those figures. But if those figures are just in a database as truth, then we don't know what figures to adjust. As soon as you break information from its source, it actually no longer has integrity. So thinking that data has existence, independent existence, from its source of assertion, right? Like, if these are our sales figures, surely no salesman has ever had a conflict of interest in reporting their sales figures. It <laughs> must be accurate, right? Like, sure they are. And same thing with, you know, no, no, nobody doing accounting has ever fudged the books or, right? Like, it, we assume the truth of these things, but if we decouple them from the agency of who's creating them, we've lost the integrity of it. And so you said that Nathan Waters was asking about fungible assets, and, I, and I, uh, I'm not 100% sure if, if you meant fungible as in tokens, or uh, if, because I thought there was, a, I, saw, I think I saw part of that Facebook thread, and I think somebody was also asking about connected connection to real world assets with somebody. Yeah, I think they're looking at like land titles exactly. and that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. So I don't view land titles as fungible because this piece of land is never equal to that piece of land. And so right. that's, so, but in any case, this is one of the things that's missing with blockchain. Blockchain acts like we can create a cryptographic token and we can create some other thing out in the world. Like let's, let's even, let's make it more concrete than land titles. Let's have it be works of art that we stick an RFID tag on that does cryptographic key signing when you read it type of thing that can prove that it has a hidden key in there. And, you know, because we surely nobody will ever be able to counterfeit those tags. Right. Well, I mean, that's the question, right? Is like, you know, this tag is supposedly associated with the Mona Lisa, but... But through what agency? See, this is the thing for me that's missing. You always, the only way you can go from this abstract world of representation to the concrete world is through somebody being accountable. And when you, when you just leave that out of the loop, then there ain't nobody accountable. And you're pretending that there's going to maintain some magic correlation between these things. The only way you can maintain a correlation if somebody's responsible for maintaining that. And when you remove the agency, then you've lost that integrity. 
And because Holochain is agent-centric, it's actually much easier to manage because we're not trying to manage some abstract absolute list of data. We're actually managing the changes to a system that are made by agents. And you track those changes. If I'm passing this painting off to you and signing in that it was still the one that I had taken custody of and now you're taking custody of it and you signed to receive that custody, right? You know, then I can be held to account for while it was in my possession. Now you can be held to account for while it was in your possession. And it isn't just magic. We're not just magically thinking that a sticker is what binds this to some cryptographic token. So I guess you could say then that, uh, you know, VeChain suffers and these other sort of projects that are like supply chain trust oriented are, are suffering from a kind of epistemological failure. Yeah. Now I think about, um, Oh, go ahead. Well, I just wanted to say the other yeah. one about time exists. Yeah. Right? Like as if some absolute time exists, like the whole point of the consensus in blockchain is really determining a sequence of events. But if I'm ha handing off an asset to you, and I'm signing this handoff to my chain and you're signing it to your chain, it comes after whatever actions I've taken and before whatever next actions I'm taking. And same for you. There's no question of the sequence of events in relative time between us, right? There may be questions in absolute time, but what the heck does that have to do with this painting? There is no absolute time. Right? Like we already know that. If out in the world, if there's a you know lightning bolt over there, well, people hear the thunder at different times. And it's not going to be, there is no absolute time. To pretend that there is, is to generate a fiction. And so what blockchain is doing is having a proof of work or proof of stake, essentially lottery, to choose one perspective as the true perspective for this block and generating this fiction of absolute data and absolute time. That sounds to me like the book that I read under Sean at John F. Kennedy U on becoming aware, where they talk about structuring knowledge, starting in this sort of inherent dignity of the first person experience, saying we can't we can't say whether, you know, the purple bats that attacked you while you were, you know, driving that car on acid or whatever are real or unreal, right? They say, okay, what we can do is we can build the first person, we can build a second person consensus, bring a third person in, and so on, and build it out. And that's, I mean, what, what, you're, what you're saying is that, that this is a sort of inversion to meet the, the way that our, our perspectives are historically and psychologically actually structured um, without falling into this pit of imagining that there is an out there out there basically like uh, sort of, but I think that you are stating it as a weaker rather than a stronger truth. Uh, and I would assert that actually like, look at the way your body's built, right? You have a zygote that gets created with particular DNA because of the, the combining of the, the sperm and egg that, right. You have, that has particular DNA. That's the first person Right, and then it spreads. This isn't this isn't just a, you know, to respect somebody's, you know, being ridiculed for seeing purple bats or whatever. This is actually the way order is created in the world, right? The a planet that starts with some dust motes coming together and or what and gaining a little more gravity and you know whatever. Like this is not, it it isn't, <laughs> uh, some woo woo approach. This is like the actual approach in living systems and in nature and the world. Yeah. And the idea that there's an abstraction that is the actual thing is highly dubious mm. and very expensive computationally to maintain that fiction. Right. You know, it's actually um, looking at Holochain compared to, I read uh, Dan Larimer's essay on the limits of crypto economic governance recently. And, a lot of that, a lot of his thesis seems like it's coming up in this conversation, namely that no matter how secure and well incentivized the goings on inside your network happen to be, that you're never completely certain about the relationships that any of those agents have with people outside the network. 
you know, and so in order for your, your fiction, what you're, you know, you're saying your, uh, your model economy to be as accurate as we're kind of all pretending that these blockchain microeconomies are would mean that one of them, again, bringing us back to this issue of, you know, one of them would have to outcompete the rest and basically like consume everything. And all of us would have to be doing all of our economic activity inside of it. And that doesn't seem, that doesn't seem real. It's not the way ecosystems work, right? This is exactly why we want to be, I mean, whole chain applications interoperate fairly easily. And so we see growing a whole ecosystem of these things. And unlike, like the Ethereum blockchain, where every DAP and every transaction happens on one blockchain, there is no one holochain blockchain. Every holochain app is its own encrypted P2P network, and it's its own holochain, right? So it already is an ecosystemic approach. Holochain itself creates an ecosystem of holochains. It's not one monolithic thing. And yeah, the thing that you're saying about... Um, the kind of abstracted model, like we're trying to preserve the purity of an abstracted model. I think that the main reason why Holochain is going to outcompete uh, most of the blockchain space is the composability. It's how easy it's going to be for this to connect to this to connect to this and for people to mash things up. And, and then you start getting that creative and co-creative environment and things grow and change and develop and evolve. Well, I mean, given that we've spent 45 minutes leading people through a total tangle of dense and specific language, <laughs> um, now now feels like the time to give people the the reward of a human readable future. And so I'm curious, through the thicket of all of these ideas and the way that they're represented in the design of this technology, what is the the vision dangling before you and your team motivating all of this, like on a human personal level, what is the experience of somebody in the future that y'all are building? Like what is, what is motivating you to do this? What's it going to feel like to live in this world? Hmm. Kind of feel like there's two parts to this answer. Um, One is the positive part that I'm hearing you ask. And one is, for me, also a, a significant part of the motivator, which is some of the unraveling that we see happening and um, wanting to plot an intercept course to, um, um, on that. <laughs> yeah. um, so I want to start with, with that, actually, the some of the negative stuff, which is that um, there, there's a lot of messes happening in the world right now on, you know, planetary systemic scale, whether that's, you know, um, climate change or soil depletion or radioactive oceans, or, you know, we can, we can look at a lot of different factors and um, we can try to bury our heads in the sand and say, Oh, all that stuff is happening. Totally nothing to do with us. Or we can say, Oh, (laughs) yeah. Where did that radioactivity came from? Oh yeah. That, yeah, that was us. Um, was using that soil? Uh, yeah, yeah, that was us. Uh, who, you know, like we can notice that we actually move more matter on the planet now than rivers and oceans, and like, like we <laughs> we are a force of nature, and we are affecting the planet in that way. And if we don't, like, the, I showed you that living systems model of wealth picture. If we don't start connecting to the fact that we are ourselves constrained to the patterns that nourish life, <laughs> we're not likely to have a very good outcome there. And aside from that, the patterns that we're using are fundamentally on a collapse course because, you know, like, for example, our, our, uh, our national currencies are all issued as debt which bear interest and they have compounding interest, compounding debt, which means you have to have compounding growth and in one generation, we've used half the world's non-renewable resources. We can't do that another generation, right? And when you have this compounding growth pattern as a requirement built into the currency, in in most places, that's called a, a Ponzi scheme. You have to keep actually taking in new, uh, new debt to pay the old bills, right? And uh, 
Ponzi schemes always collapse when they reach their limits of growth. When you can't take in the new set of debt, you can't justify that next level of growth. You can't buy the next. You can't get the next suckers or whatever, right? It's, so it's not a question of if; it's only a question of when. And ironically, the cryptocurrency stuff that's happening is just accelerating that unraveling. I'm pretty sure we've created this strange dichotomy, false dichotomy of crypto and fiat, when so far all the cryptocurrencies have been created by fiat. They are created from nothing, which is what what fiat means. And they haven't changed the economic patterns of the national currencies. They've just changed which group is the authority for doing it. Um, Miners and stakers and that kind of stuff instead of bankers and bureaucrats. And They've repeated all the same extractive, exploitive, destructive, speculative patterns faster. It's just turbocharged. And now they've, you know, managed to get interlinked billions of dollars of um, speculative wealth and are pulling banks and pension funds and things like that over into the into the crypto domain because they're afraid of missing out. You've got this FOMO of People are making these big returns, and we're not. And finally, got loud enough for everyone's dad to hear. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so now, these two things, both of which are designed unsustainably, are intertangled, and one is turbocharged and accelerating that process. And so, sorry, this was a long answer to get to to the thing, but but I'm concerned about whether we can get these things out in time to build a safety net whether we can get these asset-backed, value-stable, connected-to-real-human-needs currencies out there that can give us a safety net. So as some of those things start to unravel, people don't have to suffer a complete systemic breakdown, you know, because when, when financial things unravel, who's going to ship the food? Who's going to truck the food into the cities and fill the shelves on the supermarket and all that, you know, like that kind of stuff. Bad stuff happens with that kind of so uh, we think that there are viable alternatives that are already within our technological reach, but we have to get them now within our social reach and our, our, our uh, cognitive understanding of the need for something that's, so, that's responsible, not just a get-rich-quick coin. And so for me, the visceral experience that I think many will have is as other things spin wildly out of control in lots of different directions that these things will be there to lean on and will provide a a center of stability for some real human needs in the coming future. Um, And then there's the other side of the the user experience, which, um, you know, if anybody's ever tried to use cryptocurrencies, you get that we are not there yet on UI. <laughs> like so the phenomenon of trying to build wallets and manage these keys and do transactions and install Web 3.0 browser extensions or you know like all, all these different things that we're doing to try to be able to have somebody interact with one. I don't think it can be fundamentally. We've gotten people up to the level of of digital literacy to dance with web pages. I think that's where we've got to meet. We have to have it be that simple. Um, it can't be harder than using Twitter or Facebook or you know things that we're currently using because we've we already lose some of the population even in being able to do that. So that's where we've really tried to to create the user experience on Holochain apps as well. Is it's just a, a web socket and you can use all of your favorite web UIs. You can use React Redux. You can use Vue.js. What's your favorite framework to build a UI in? Go ahead and do that. What do you want to build the app in? Right now, it's JavaScript or Lisp, but soon anything that compiles to WebAssembly, that should, in not too distant future, get us another 30 or 40 languages that you can write little chain apps in. And so it, it's not about wrangling you into a smart contract language or something like that. It's actually about how do we meet the bulk of the developers where they are with their skills so that they can provide an experience to users where they are with their needs. You know, you, you said something like this uh, in the question I posed you and, and the other folks in the panel 
at the conference this weekend about this being an open source revolution. And the fact that now it's, it's about how fast a particular technology can be brought to market, quote unquote, rather than so, you know, so much about the team's, you know, proprietary genius. And because that was such a, because I feel like your answer to my sort of, I'm always looking for the way to weaponize something or the way that it can be corrupted and appropriated, like the way that, for example, the psychedelic revolution became merely an advertising aesthetic within just a few years. You know, the way that the the visionary experiences used to sell us more, you know, clever products. And so, you know, I go into this space and um, I see that a lot of people are working on these small, brilliant, visionary, revolutionary teams of folks. And, and what is keeping some enormous corporation from just grabbing that technology for themselves and bringing it to market immediately and, and ruining all your work? And I'd love to, your answer I thought was very sane. And I'd love to sort of end this on an optimistic note. Does that worry you that Holochain might get, you know, picked up by Google and, uh, you know, just sort of further their quote unquote, don't be evil sort of compromise or, or what? Yeah. So first of all, I don't think that most large corporations are actually all that good at innovation. Like that's part of why they, they gobble up the smaller companies that are, are doing the innovating. Um, so I'm not sure that they could reorganize themselves fast enough to get something out there without using smaller engines of organizations to, to do that. Um, but certainly some, some are, you could, they have a lot of resources they could throw at it. Um, but part of the thing for me is it, frankly, if somebody can get this out there better or faster than us, I would like them to, because I think this is a fundamental capacity that we need. But the, the question is whether something gets compromised and, um, I think you could do watered-down versions of Holochain, and frankly, I think some people will try to do some watered-down versions of Holochain, um, where they, you know, some things are patented and, and proprietary and not open and you know all that kind of stuff. And I'm really hoping that us as early movers in this pattern, plus everything being at least visible source, even if it's not open source, in terms of license permissions, gives the whole ecosystem that co-creative dynamic to move fast um, because that's what what open sourcing kind of does it creates that that whole um, juicy co-creative space which I think it's hard for a corporation to move faster than once it has achieved some critical mass of participation if you can't pay people to move faster than all the individuals that are passionate about making something is there some other part of the answer I gave yesterday? I think I mean, you, you mentioned that it was um, a misaligned incentive. Well, that's true. I mean, one of the things is that the strategy of the industrial age economy has been to enclose some bit of value and charge for access to it, whether that's through intellectual property or that's just through software as a service on a centralized server or blah, 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 right? So given the very design of Holochain is about building an unenclosable carrier, I don't think that the business models of these corporations know how to map onto something that they can't close, that they can't, you know, charge for that access to. Yeah. So I, I like to uh, end these conversations with an invitation to imagine that this recording will be discovered by our distant post-human descendants or, you know, raccoons with thumbs or whatever, that this is your opportunity to leave a message after the beep, maybe ask a question? Well, I think people are going to look back on this era and recent past with a kind of incredulity that we <laughs> could have thought it made any sense to do some of the things we do, like to, uh, you know, be poisoning the planet or whatever. Like, I mean, basically the economic engine we've created converts real living physical assets to symbols in bank accounts, to just numbers, bits, as rapidly as possible. 
We have created an engine that does that. And we, most people are still thinking that there's a future in that. And I think that it's going to be looked back as some of the, just the craziest insanity. Like how could people have become so decoupled from the world of real value and so uh, enmeshed in the illusion of this symbolic value? And I think that's, that's actually one of the traps of currencies. I mean, I'm talking about using currencies as these tools for change, but you can't lose track of that it's just an indicator. It's just pointing to something. It is, it is the map, not the territory. And it's just about helping us navigate this territory, repattern this territory. It's not about accumulating the most maps. That's awesome. Yeah. Thanks, Art. Where can people follow up with you about this stuff or the project? You can find us at metacurrency.org, holochain.org, holo.host, artbrock.com. There's a, there's a lot of resources. Uh, in case you're wondering whether we have white papers, we've got many. <laughs> uh, we, you know, there's no lack of, of substance and blogs and material on this stuff. I actually teach your building responsible cryptocurrencies in a cryptocurrency webinar I'll be sure to link to that and some of your other stuff in the show notes. Nice. Yeah. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Future Fossils is part of the MindPod network, along with a number of other excellent shows. I recommend you go to mindpodnetwork.com. Check them all out. And if you're not already part of our daily discussions over at the Future Fossils Facebook group, look us up there. It's becoming a really wonderful source of news and conversation, and I would love to see you in there. Feel free to reach out with your stories and questions to futurefossilspodcast at gmail.com, and may each of your nows be rich and wonderful.